excited to get to teach this class. I'm also very excited because I sent out an email about class and I wanted to see who showed up. Let me tell you why. My email said we're going to be looking at the subject of, of women in Luke. And whenever you send out an email like that, it's always very interesting to see who comes. Do the women come because they want to hear about the women in Luke? Or do the men come because they want to hear about the women in Luke? And so I've been walking around randomly trying to see who showed up. And it looks about 50-50, which seems about right. But the Gospel of Luke is different in so many ways than the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, or John. Now, John we know is a separate gospel in a sense, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the ones that people often get confused because they tell so many of the same stories. They use so much of the same language. And so when you're looking at those, uh, you, can, you, you can say that all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all see things in a sense the same way. That's why they're called synoptic Gospels, which comes from the Greek that means to optic, to see things the same way. And, and they do, and yet they do it with distinction. Each one was written with a distinct purpose. And Luke's is, is unique in a number of different ways. And it's those unique aspects of Luke that I'm trying to spend some time on this summer. And so as I do it, I was not here last week, uh, uh, and I thank uh, David Capes for filling in for me, but uh, this week, I want us to go back two weeks ago when I was here, and I put this slide up and said that one of Luke's themes is that God is reversing the world. And so Luke writes in a way that, that really drives this theme home, that a great reversal is occurring in the world at the hands of God. Now, we talked about that two weeks ago. I want to pick back up that idea, and I want to look at it from this angle. I want us to witness God's concern for outsiders. God has a great concern for those who are outside. Now, all of us grew up, well, I say that all of us grew up physically. I'm not sure all of us have grown up emotionally or mentally. At least my wife says I haven't. But, uh, all of us have have grown up and we all went through those stages those stages where there are cliques or groups and this is the in group and those are the out the thing is those don't really change end as you grow up there's still the inside group there's still the outside people you just don't come into contact as readily with them because you're not all going to school together. But I'm sure in your jobs, in your social circles, in your work circles, you've all experienced it. And God has a great concern for the outsiders. I tried to make sense of it this way. Um, I think you can say that God takes the outsiders and he changes them into 
insiders. That took me about 35 minutes to do. You better really appreciate that. And remember that God takes the outsiders and makes them insiders. Here, look, I'm going to center it on the table. See that? That took another 15 minutes right there just to get it in the center of the table because it was bothering my ACDC or whatever that is where your OCD, OCD, I've got to get that right too. Um, so here's what we're going to do today. This is your roadmap. We're going to do three things. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at women passages because Luke has some distinct passages about women And women were outsiders. Women didn't get to sit with the men in the synagogue. They had their own section. Women weren't allowed to study Torah. They weren't going to be in Bible study. Women were excluded in so many ways. This in-group men wouldn't even talk to women if they weren't part of their family. And so, and, and the men that did were men who were doing it for nefarious motives. So you've got a unique set of outsiders in women, in the culture and in the time. And I want to look at some of these passages and see God's great concern for taking outsiders And making them insiders. So we'll look at some of the women passages. And then after we do that, we're going to look at a challenge for today. And why does this speak so much to me? And why should it speak so much, I hope, to you? And then the third thing that we'll do is we'll look at our points for home. Uh, uh, So with that, let's start by looking at the women passages. Now there's really five unique women sections in Luke. So there are five different sections of women passages that the other Gospels just don't have. That Luke's gone to the trouble to include in his for some reason. And, and some of the passage, some of these sections have more than one story in them. For example, the first section is Luke 7-11 through 8-3. And it's got a couple of different stories in it. But they're unique stories about women to Luke. The second section is Luke 10, 38 through 42. We won't have time to get to that today. There's a real good chance I'll continue teaching on this and we'll get to that later. The third section is Luke 11, 27 through 28, a really short passage. The fourth section is Luke 13, 10 through 17. And the last section is Luke 23, 27 through 31. And I just put them up there even though we won't get to them in case some of you uh, do take notes. And if I don't wind up teaching through them, at least you've got them and you go study it on your own. And ask yourself... Why? I love what he's doing. He's taking a picture of the slide. That's the way to make notes, right there. Ba-boom. Why? uh, uh, um, So with that, let's dive in. All right. Uh, First passage. Luke 7, 11 is where we begin. Now, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, if you're reading through Luke, when you see things like this, soon afterward he went to a town called Nain. 
Luke doesn't have to give the name of the town. He's already pushing the boundaries of how long a a scroll he can fill up. But Luke does those types of details, and I'm convinced he does it because that's the ancient equivalent of footnotes. He's writing a story he wants you to be able to verify. He's writing a story where if you've got any doubt about this story, go to the town called Nain. Check it out. This isn't like those well, I heard once that somebody did this and this. Okay. This is, okay, here it was. Is this town. It's called Nain. You can get on the map. You can say, where's Nain? Well, if this is Palestine in, in New Testament times, you got the Sea of Galilee up there and the Dead Sea down here. Blow it up a little bit. You got Nain right here. It's about seven miles south of Nazareth. Or if you want to put it this way, it's right here near the Morin Hill on the north side. The Morin Hill, Mora Hill. Uh, the hill of Moreh is, is where, uh, Gideon, um, winnowed out his forces there in the water. Um, but this is not on the main thoroughfares. I put this map here so you can see the red lines. Those are the main roads back then. So this is off the beaten path a bit, but you can go look at some of the ruins today. It's interesting to go in antiquity in the 300s. There's a reference to, uh, um, I think it was a Spanish pilgrim, if I remember correctly, to the Holy Lands, who went to the church that existed at the time at the house of the widow of Nain. Because undoubtedly, you know, she, Jesus is resurrected. She's going to be a believer. Her sons, you'll see, I don't, spoiler alert, Jesus raises her son from the dead. And so uh, a church gets built on the site. But this is Luke saying, hey, get the story and understand the story, but go check it out if you've got any doubts at all about this. And so let's keep going. Verse 12, as Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He's the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So she had no other male association that Luke gives us. There was a considerable crowd from the town with her. So her son is being carried out. Now, for the widow, this is worst-case scenario. If you think about it this way... um, Women were already outcasts in so many ways, and their touch with society and culture, other than other women, their touch with society and culture was really through their the men in their family. And so here you've got a woman, and she's already a widow, so her husband is dead. She's had to face life without her husband. Not an easy chore for anyone. And then her son is dead and dies. And, and she's got the, the struggle of trying to figure out, you know, we don't know had the son suffered illness for a long time and she went through all of that. Was it a sudden, unexpected death? Luke doesn't tell us. But she's trying to struggle through all of that and figure out what to do with her son. These are real people. These are real facts. 
you've got to try to figure out how to, you know, back then in that culture, they didn't have, uh, Israel didn't have, uh, they had a process in Egypt, but Israel, we have no evidence of Israel using any embalming whatsoever. All the evidence we have is that they try to bury them as quickly as they possibly can. And they would try to wrap them in linen or wrap them in some type of a garment or just put them in their clothes. But under the Jewish law, they're not allowed to, anybody who's touching the body is going to be unclean for seven days. And so it, it, it's, she's in a really tough situation with very little to rely on. There's a, a, a scholar, a New Testament scholar named Joel Green. I think he still teaches at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. And, and I like what he said about this. And not simply because Joel Green took his first degree from Texas Tech University. Uh, he says, most telling in Luke's account is his portrayal of this woman's catastrophic state. She's a widow who's lived since her husband's death in relation to her only son, himself a young man. With his passing, she is relegated to a status of dire vulnerability without a visible means of support and certainly deprived of her access to the larger community and any vestiges of social status within the village. She, she can't claim social security. FDR hasn't put that into place yet. She doesn't have life insurance. To fall back on. So Jesus comes and he sees this funeral procession coming out. And they're carrying him on a pallet on a bier. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. Now Luke's just done something very subtle. He doesn't say, and when Jesus saw her. He says, and when the Lord, Hokurios. He doesn't call Jesus Jesus here. He says, the Lord saw her. The Lord saw her, and he had compassion on her. If we just read through this, and we don't stop, we're going to miss a glimpse. But this story and the way Luke has written it, if we understand it in its day, it gives an incredible glimpse into the nature of the Lord God's mission in Jesus. I want this story to stir up in all of us a heart of compassion. For those who are hurting and who are on the outside. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, there are three things that Jesus does here. The first thing he does is he tells her, no more weeping in sorrow. She may want to weep for joy in a little bit. But she can stop the weeping in sorrow. And this is in a gospel 
where Luke, in just the previous chapter, in the way he ordered his gospel, reminded us of Jesus' teaching. In chapter 6, verse 21, Blessed of you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This God of turnarounds. He's telling her, don't weep anymore. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Then Jesus comes up to the bier. But he doesn't just come up and tell everybody, hey, hang on. Jesus comes up and he touches the bier. He actually touches the plank that's got the body on it. Now, that's going to render Jesus unclean for a while. But Jesus is willing to be an outsider to bring the outsider inside. Jesus will always be willing to be the outsider so you and I can be inside. So the second thing he does is he touches the the plank that's got the body. The third thing he does is he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And he speaks to the dead man. Now that's massive authority. We got that authority implied when Luke begins this story by saying, Lord, Lord, but, you know, you, you can remember the, the widow Zarephath of Zarephath where, where the prophet Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead. He prays to God and speaks to God, please raise the son. Jesus in this story doesn't say to God, please raise this boy. In this story, the Lord says, rise and speaks directly to the dead man. And, and, and this story is one where we're supposed to read it and we're supposed to be amazed at the Lord God whose authority has compassion on someone that the rest of society would brush under the rug. And he will go outside of his purity his uh, ritualistic purity, he will go outside of that and do what it takes to restore this woman and what she had lost here. And so we have it, the story continues in Luke seven fifteen. and the dead man sat up, he began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. See, the... The emphasis here is what Jesus is doing for the look the dead boy, he go off and be in eternity with the Lord. He's not doing it for the dead boy. He's doing this for the mom. Now, fear seizes everybody who's watching this, and rightfully so. They glorified God. They said, look, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. 
And, and yeah, a prophet, Jesus was a prophet. That's true. But he was also, God has visited his people. He was more than the mouthpiece of God. And so this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country, even to CFBC in Texas. Now, in the Greek text, you'll know if all of the old manuscripts don't contain something because they'll put it in brackets. That tells you generally in your Bible translation, this is only in some or maybe one of the Greek manuscripts you'll be looking at. And sure enough, you'll see even in the Greek manuscript, and it says, they didn't have a C, so they had a K for C sound. And so it's K. F-B-K, C-F-B-C in English in Texas. This report's gone out of what our Lord did. You know, one of the songs I grew up with that I hate my kids didn't grow up with, but I'm sure they've got other songs that they grew up with that do the same for them. But there are some triggers in my head that automatically trigger some of the songs we sang when I was a kid. And one of them is, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And this is one of these stories, which is, I just stand in amaze at Jesus, what he did. I'm so glad Luke included this story. All right, well, this story is in the first section, but I told you that first section is Luke 7, 11 through 8, 3. And there's actually, I could have broken it up, I guess, but I think it was legit to do it this way. There's an interlude where Jesus has some interactions with different people and different groups before it continues in verse 36. But in verse 36 is the second story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. That was nice. That was real nice. Invited him over for supper. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Let me get up here so I can see it better. Who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And we're going to rewind and look at that story again. But before we look at it again, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to look at it with two different ways you could read this story. Okay? Be thinking. Two different ways to see this. One of the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were real persnickety about everything being done according to God's moral 
and, and religious code. Everything had to be done according to the law. And the Pharisees, if you had said to them, well, you need to quit being a Pharisee, they'd have said, well, no, that's God told us to follow the law. We're the devoted ones. We're doing it. God sent Israel into exile because Israel wasn't following the law. We're the reason this country probably still exists. And if more of you followed the law the way we do, the Romans probably wouldn't even be here. But at least they let us self-regulate and worship and do our own stuff. And it's probably because we're the ones doing what God told us to. And I'm sure they could quote all of those Old Testament scriptures. If my people who are called by my name will, you know, humble themselves and don't. Well, they'd skip the humble part. Uh, uh, and do what I say. So it's one of those guys. All right. He asked Jesus to eat with him. Now, eating in that day and in that culture was not simply, hey, we've got some extra food. Uh, We don't want to throw it out. We don't like to eat reruns or leftovers, whatever they're called. Um, uh, Redos. Um, And so let's just get some people over here to eat the food up. No, food was um, uh, uh, to to invite someone into your home in that culture and in that time was an indication of a a social gift, which, by the way, you were expected to reciprocate with another social gift of equal or like value. So I'm sure the Pharisee was feeling pretty good because Jesus couldn't invite him into Jesus' home. Jesus didn't really have a home. But he's an itinerant guy, and I'm sure the Pharisee wants to check him out. So the Pharisee says, why don't you come eat with us? Now, you would not do that unless someone was your social equal. And back then, they had social status. And when you invited someone into your home, you were inviting them in, meaning that they are either your equal or greater. But you didn't invite in the lessers. So, invites him in, Jesus went, and Jesus reclined at table. So, the way you would eat back then in the home, let's see, this works. You had, uh, uh, well, in, the Romans called them a triclinium, uh, we'd call it a dining room. Um, but you generally would have a room, alright, and in the room there would be laid out, depending upon how wealthy the homeowner was, you would either have a table here or you might have a table also here and here. You could have three tables in the room. And then in addition to those three tables, you've got benches that are kind of couch benches because what you would do is you would lay down and recline to eat. So they didn't have tables and chairs. It wasn't pull up to the table. It would be lay down like this and use your hand to eat. So your feet are cocked out that way and and you've got someone else who's laying down next to you and they'd be 
right here and your feet would be behind them. Their feet would be at an angle. So it'd be, it'd be like, um, uh, you got someone laying, you know, like this eating and someone else next to them and someone else next to them on the, the bench. This is the bench that they're laying on. Make sense? All right. So Jesus is reclining at table. By the way, it also lets you know that this is a fairly wealthy house and a well-to-do guy. He can afford not only to have house guests uh, for a meal, but he's got a good table for him to lie on. And I need to hit another button. Sorry. So they're reclining at table. Now, look, behold, a woman of the city, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. Now, a woman of the city means that everybody knew who she was. Was a sinner is telling you she made a living as a prostitute. And, and back in that day, in that culture, it was different up in the Greek world. It was different even in some of the Roman world. But in the Jewish world in that day, the culture was one where women had very limited ability to earn a living. When I was growing up, um, I can remember in elementary school, growing up in, in Rochester, New York at the time, before I'd moved to the Holy Lands in Lubbock, um, I can remember everybody talking about what they might be when they grew up. And the boys wanted to be firemen. They wanted to be policemen. They wanted to be professional athletes, etc. The girls, moms, secretaries, nurses, and teachers. That was about it. Some of you are old enough to remember there was a time within our country where those were the main jobs available if you were a woman. And and that that was challenged in the 60, late 60s, early 70s. But that's what made TV shows like Mary Tyler Moore just outrageous TV shows in their day that were ground-setting. Here's a young professional woman who works in a news studio, and she's not a secretary. She's a producer. We live in a very different culture today, but we need to remember that prostitution is one of the main ways that a woman who had no male affiliation to earn a living is one of the few recourses to which a woman could get a job. Now, if you think I'm justifying prostitution, I'm not, of course. I'm trying to help us understand the culture of the day as we read this passage. So a woman of the city who is a sinner... When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, first of all, 
she was making a decent living as a prostitute. Because that ain't cheap. But second of all, that's probably a tool of her trade. Because as a prostitute, to have the ointment and to have it in an alabaster jar and to have it smelling good, uh, that's a tool of the trade. So she brings a tool of the trade in and standing behind Jesus who's laying down at his feet weeping she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. Now a good, polite Jewish woman is going to have her head covered. They wore as many hats as you, Miss Carolyn. They did not go out in public with their head uncovered. She has not only uncovered her head, but she's let down her hair. And she's using her hair on his feet in some semi-seductive act with her ointment. And then she starts kissing his feet and massaging them with the ointment. Now Luke has deliberately written this this way. Because Luke has deliberately given you two different ways to see this. And the Pharisee sees it one way. And Jesus knows it to be the other. See, the Pharisee sees that this is a prostitute who has come in with the tools of her trade and is trying to seduce this fellow. She chooses a time when he's laying down. She lets her hair down, her glory... She's emotionally vulnerable. She's crying. She's got her ointment out and is massaging his feet. And rubbing her hair on him. And he's just, I can't believe this. In fact, Luke says, when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this guy was a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he'd have known who this woman is, what sort of woman this is, and what she's doing as she's touching him, because she's, says sinner, he'd use the word whore. He just left polite company. Now, Luke's writing this, but I do hope you're enjoying your vantage point. Because we're looking on the other side of the glass at this. And we know exactly who Jesus was. We know this story. Jesus answers. By the way, see how he says Jesus here for Jesus? That's another way of showing that emphasis in the widow of Nain's story where he calls him the Lord. Here, he's gone back to his normal. Jesus. Jesus answers him. Well, the guy was just in his brain. 
But Jesus knows what he's thinking in his brain. And he answers him. And the fellow in his brain saying, he's not a prophet. If he was a prophet, he'd have known who this woman was. Well, I hate to tell you this, hot shot. He's such a prophet, he knows what you're thinking. When you say he's not a prophet, because he doesn't know her. So, Jesus now says, Simon. And suddenly the Pharisee has a name in Luke's story. Simon. I have something to say to you. And Simon answered and said, Say it. Teacher. Not prophet. Not Lord. Teacher. It's come down a couple of notches. All right. Those are the only women passages we've got time for. We're not through with that story, by the way. Those are the only women passages we've got time for. We'll look at more, I think, next week. But I want us to talk about the challenge for today. So we're going to stay in this story for the challenge for today. See, Luke's painted a story where you could judge the, the intentions and the heart of that woman in two diametrically different ways. The way the Pharisee did. Which the Pharisee could say, look, I, I had all of the indicators. I mean, don't, don't blame me for coming to that conclusion. Based on my info, this is what I had. Or Jesus' perspective of a woman who's an outsider, about as outside as you could get from Jewish society and culture who's now needing to come inside. See, we tend to see the world and its people one way. When God sees it the way it really is. And our vision is so limited and our information and data is so limited And I don't care who you are. Our ability to know someone else's heart is only, only present by their actions. And then we've got to be really careful. Jesus answers. And he says to him, Simon, I have something to say. And Simon says, say it. Teacher. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. Actually, the, <laughs> the Greek reads a little different. It starts out, that first word you see is duo, which means two. You've got the two money lenders were... To the, I mean, the two debtors were to the money lender. In other words, the, Luke's emphasizing in the story Jesus is telling. All right, you got two debtors that owe money to this fellow. So that's your start. Two debtors. One owes five hundred denarii. Your standard minimum wage, average wage, would have been 
five to six denarii a week. A denarii was a day's wage for just an average day laborer. So that's, in today's terms, I don't know, but it's something. (laughs) We could do some math here, but that's a great thing for you to do. Um, One of them owes 500 days of labor. Put in weekends or Shabbat, you got about two years of income. So if the average American household makes $50,000 a year, and I know a lot of people are less than that, and I decry the poverty in this country. A lot of people are more than that. But I, I would suspect the average is around forty dollars to $50,000 a year. 50 I'm choosing because the math's easier. Two years, that's $100,000. One fellow owes a hundred grand, and the other owes $10,000. 50 denarii. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, and Simon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I love that, I suppose, Hupa Lombano, um, he says, yeah, all right, you know, if this isn't a trick question, <laughs> you know, you ever have someone say to you, okay, I've got a question, here it is, here's the story. I'm always trying to figure out the trick, because if it's an obvious answer, then they're not, you know, why would they ask it, right, you know, so you always try to, so he's saying, okay, well, if it's not, this isn't a trick question, then it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, ding, 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 we have a winner. You judged rightly. You got it right. There is a tremendous power in telling a story. Can I just pause on that for a moment? Um, Psychologists teach us uh, in in communication theory and in communication uh, uh, the communication field, they teach us that telling stories are a wonderful way to educate as well as to motivate, but also to change people's perceptions because stories have an ability to get behind our intellectual defenses. And with stories, all of a sudden, our mind starts identifying with different elements in different ways than we would with a logical puzzle in front of us. And, and, and that's what communication walks are teaching to people like lawyers and others who communicate for a living. Preachers tell stories because those stories will help motivate people. The thing about it is, while the studies teach that now and the the communication wonks are so proud of the way they figured it out and they can publish on it in, in all of these journals and all. The Lord who made our minds has known this forever. Because Jesus was a master storyteller. And he was doing what we 2,000 years later have figured out as effective way back then. Heavens, Nathan the prophet, God used him to do the same with King David when he confronted David with his sin. 
there's a huge power in telling stories. And I, I, I love this story of... Well, let me, let me tell you a story. This is a picture of the Animus River. Now, the Animus River is in Colorado. And the Animus River runs down through Durango, Colorado. Me and my buddy Chip Hurd decided we were going to do a guy's trip to Durango, Colorado. And by a guy's trip, it was going to be him and me. We were going to leave the rest of the world behind, and we were just going to go spend a couple of days uh, uh, enhancing our man card. So that meant we had to do things that would make this truly a man's weekend. So we decided we were going to do some whitewater canoeing. So we found one of the little places that rent these canoes. We said, we'd like to rent a canoe. The fellow said, uh, where do you want to put in? The upper animus? And we said, well, we just want to canoe the rapids through the city here. And he said, well, you don't do that in canoes. You do that in the, those boats. Uh, uh, and I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll be all right. And he said, well, I mean... I can't, I'm not allowed to rent you the canoe for those rapids. We said, well, well, why not? He says, because, you know, you've got to really be good with a canoe. We're like, (laughs) he said, uh, well, I'll rent you a canoe, but you have to put a deposit down for the entire value of the canoe in case you total it. Like, fine, we'll do that. And uh, he said, uh, uh, you know, where do you want to put in? Well, why don't you put us in a couple of hours north of here where it's pretty still? And we'll just make our way down. And when we get to Durango, we'll finish up with these rapids. And then we'll park it here and get our money back. He says, all right. So he hauls us up north and we're putting in. And, and Chip was an Eagle Scout from Kentucky. He's got to know how to canoe. And I'm from West Texas. But I have a friend who's an Eagle Scout who's got to know how to canoe. So, I mean, it's bad enough to where I'm over there going to Chip. I'm saying, if this guy's going to stand here and keep looking, you're going to have to tell me which end is the front of the canoe. (laughs) And uh, uh, Chip's like, just shh. Because Chip's already told me, I've got to get in the front. He's got to get in the back. Because the experienced canoeer needs to be in the back. So I'm okay. So I get in the front. He gets in the back. And we start out. And Chip says, so it's about an hour and a half before we hit the rapids. That means I've got an hour and a half to teach you how to canoe. I said, I'm a quick learner. So we start doing all these practicings, you know, boom, 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 and boom, boom, and all of this stuff, and boom, boom, boom. And, and the guy had told us, he said, now look, when you come in, after you round the power plant, you need to pull off to the bank, and you need to chart how you're going to make it through the rapids. So we get there, and I mean, it's getting kind of rough. We pull over, and we start charting, and then we, okay, that's what we're going to do. So the problem is, we're like here... So this is the bank. Let's get a fresh sheet. So the let's say it's going like this, the river. Okay? 
And we've pulled over right here. So this is us in the canoe. Actually, the canoe is this color. That's us in the canoe. All right. Well, we're going to pull back out. We got to get down here. But there's this huge boulder right here that's part of causing all of this water to go. Okay. So Chip says, look, we're going to push out. And as soon as we push out, you've got to get your, uh, um, you've got to get on the right side and you've got to be pushing back while or I don't remember exactly, but somehow he had it figured out. And I did know at the time what he was saying. He said, because we got to get, get, not just get out in the canoe, but we got to get that canoe turned. Okay? Immediately. So I'm like, okay, man, I'm all in. Well, let me tell you what happened. We didn't get that canoe turned. We got out, and that water, um, somebody needed to turn it off, but nobody had turned it off. And so it just immediately pushed us into that rock. It tumped us over. The rope on the canoe got stuck under the rock. And the water had pushed the canoe under the water at this point after it had wrapped it into a nice crescent moon shape. Uh, I I do still own that canoe. If I was going to pay for it, by golly, I was taking it home. Um, uh, I'll show it to you sometime if you come over and, uh, uh, and we're in the water and I am under the water and I can't breathe. And I know Chip had warned me, keep your arms out like this, get your feet in front of you. Cause if your feet are behind you and they get caught on a rock, the water pressure will push your face down and you'll drown. And you got to keep your arms up because the water's whipping you everywhere. And if your head hits a rock, you'll go unconscious, you'll drown. And I mean, I'm holding my breath. I can't breathe. I can't do anything at all. And some really nice, godly angel, angel, person, in a kayak, goes out and saves my life. And um, I'm like, I, I mean, I was 200 yards down, and they say, it turns out you're not supposed to do that in a canoe. Um, but my gratitude for that person who could have just said, I'm not going to risk anything going to get that fella. It's his own stupid fault. He's the idiot who did it. Not my fault. But instead that person was willing to say, not my fault, but that guy needs help. I'm going to help him and, and helped me and got me out. I'm really thankful. It's a story that altered my life because it's not just a story I'm telling you. It's a story I lived. And it makes me sensitive to people who need help, even if the hot water they're in or the rapid water is of their own making. So within the framework of that, I can look at this story and I can go back to what Jesus said. Then turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Woman. You don't want to look at her. You don't want to say anything to her. You'll just cast these internal judgments. Jesus says, I entered. Whoops, whoops, go back, go back, go back. 
I entered your house. You didn't give me water to clean my feet. She wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. Standard greeting back then to do the air kiss on the cheek or to kiss the hand. You didn't give me a kiss. From the time I came in, she hadn't quit kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Throw them in the scales. You got the Pharisee and you got the prostitute. All right? The prostitute's irreligious. The woman who makes a living selling herself, Jew and Gentile both, couldn't practice religion if she tried in terms of the temple because she's constantly unclean. She is the ultimate outsider. So that's hers on her side of the scales. Then you've got Simon the Pharisee. Well, he was a bad host. Now Jesus is going to forgive both of them. Which one's going to love him more? That's the story. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who's forgiven little, loves little. Stirs up deep love in my heart for my Lord. And he said to her, Jesus now turns and he speaks to the woman. The one who's been subject of the mental judgments and all the rest. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Those who are at table at this point, they're saying, oh man, boy, so he even forgives sins? I mean, storyteller, or he's a prophet, he forgives sins? And Jesus continues talking to the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Sozo is the verb. It means healed. He's made, your faith has changed who you are. It's transformed you. It's made you whole. The challenge for today is to find the people who are the outsiders and do the work of Jesus to bring them inside. And you say, well, they don't deserve to be inside? Good. That makes it even more holy for us to do that work. That makes it even more holy for us to do that work. Points for home. I want to see the compassion of Jesus. I want to see. Not just with my eyes and not just when I'm studying this text and not just when I'm at church. I want to see the compassion of Jesus and I want to share in that compassion every day of my life with everybody I run into. I want to see the compassion of Jesus on others. But I don't want to leave this story there because I need to see the compassion of Jesus on me. There are people who, and, and, and it's hard to believe, there are people who do not feel worthy of the love of God and wonders if God really loves them. There are people who will hear this message who truly think, yeah, well, he can't forgive me because I knew what I was doing when I did it. 
or he can't. I mean, do you think the prostitute was an accidental prostitute? Do you think she didn't realize what she was doing was prostitution? God's desire is for everyone to be in a relationship with Him. He's got compassion on every outsider and wants to bring them inside the kingdom of God. And there is nobody hearing this message who's ever done anything that makes them too much of an outsider. If you are too bad for God, then please come to God because you will love Him so much. Because the more you're forgiven, the deeper your love for Him will be. So when you hear this message, and we'll look at the other women messages, don't think that they're only for the women. They are women passages that are written for all of us to understand not just the nature and the mission of Jesus, but the way it transforms who we are, how we live, and what we do. And that's the power of God. Let me pray a blessing and we're through. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for your compassion. We pray for your gentle, kind love. We pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. We pray for sensitive hearts. And we pray that we will seek those who are outside. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will transform our desires to bring them inside your kingdom, Lord. That's what we desire to do is to follow Jesus in all things. Amen. Thank you.